I'd like to speak about this evening is the subject of patience. <clears throat> the practice that we're engaged in is a practice of opening. And the Buddha was known as a being who was totally open, completely open. Because the practice is one of opening, because we're opening more and more as we practice, we become more aware of, more sensitive to that which is occurring within us. We become more aware of the noble qualities within us, our strengths that we didn't know we had. We become more aware of that which is difficult, that which is um, limited, that which is undesirable. And so because of this, patience is necessary to accompany this opening. It's necessary to have patience each step along the way in the path. Patience is, to define it, a sustained love and kindness. It's sustaining our love and our kindness and extending this sustained love and kindness towards our inner states. Extending patience towards our difficulties, our pain, our limitations, that which we don't like extending patience towards whatever it is that arises within. We could say that it's an open-hearted acceptance. And we are extending this open-hearted acceptance towards the times when we're bored, the times when we're afraid, the times when we're in lonely, when we're lonely, when we're in pain, when we're irritated, when we're anxious, when we're in despair, and also to those times when we're impatient. We see if we can extend this open-hearted acceptance to impatience as well, not to leave that out. Sometimes we're afraid to accept. We get concerned about accepting that which is limited or weak or vulnerable or difficult or seen as bad or wrong within us. We're afraid to accept because we think that acceptance is the same thing as condoning and justifying. It is true that wisdom has to do with not cultivating suffering states of mind, now beginning to discern between what we want to nurture and cultivate and what we need to let go of. So it is true that this is what wisdom is. But it is also necessary to remember, and this is one of those spiritual laws that we seemingly need to hear um, over one million times, which is that to push away anything simply strengthens it. You know, to push away anything, to try to get rid of, to simply react with aversion, and think that hating it is going to help, actually strengthens whatever we are attempting to get rid of, actually perpetuates its life, makes it longer. Now, it seems totally reasonable to try to push away what we see is off, to try to push away the unpleasant, to try to push away 
are difficulties and limitations. It sounds fairly reasonable. The problem is that reasonable or not, it doesn't work. I mean, we can reason it out, and it can seem reasonable. But the problem is that it doesn't work. We see that it actually makes whatever we're trying to get rid of, gives it more of a life, gives it maybe a double life when it would just have a one life, or a triple life when it might have a half life, or a three-hour life when it might have a one-second life, and so on and so forth. Instead, what we're attempting to do in applying uh, wisdom and patience and acceptance, this open-hearted acceptance, is instead of this attempt to push away and noticing for ourselves how much stronger what we're trying to push away becomes, instead we're doing something opposite to this. We're actually attempting to soften into it's really kind of against every instinct in our body, you know, every bone in our body to soften into the difficult, to soften into impatience, to relax into irritation or loneliness or anxiety or grief. You know? But we're going, we're doing something quite different in practice, noticing that what we have done so far hasn't really worked all that well. So doing something different means softening into and allowing what is there to, in a sense, self-liberate, to liberate itself simply through our willingness not to push away, but instead to gently hold until it changes on its own. Patience is in no way passivity or resignation. Sometimes when we hear the word patience, we, we um, hear it through eyes from the past when we've been told a million times that we should be more patient. And so sometimes we hear it as a sense of just giving up or resignation, depression even, or um, passivity, yeah? Um, sometimes we also hear it as, as having to tolerate something. But patience really doesn't have anything to do with either passivity or resignation or even tolerating anything. It is an alive quality, and it is a touching of the beauty of the heart. Yeah. Patience is alive within us and has nothing whatsoever to do with passivity With patience, we are opening always into right now. It's not like we're attempting to wait things out with gritted teeth, which is sometimes the idea that we get when we're sitting and not having a good time, that we should keep our our, our legs totally folded and um, tighten up and just grit our teeth and then, you know, hope that the teacher hasn't fallen asleep or (laughs) will get in here at the right time to ring the bell. You know, pray for that. Um, and and just just try to go through it in that way with, with great tension and contraction. And this, of course, is not real patience, which, as I said, is an alive and fluid um, beauty of the heart that we can touch. If we practice in order to become what we think we should be, and we're doing this when we're practicing with our teeth gritted and with tension and contraction, 
We miss the present moment. And transformation can only take place in the here and now. It's not possible for transformation to take place in any other moment other than always here and now. So if we're gritting our teeth, trying to wait things out, we're not present. We're waiting. We're waiting for something to happen, hopefully something good but or pleasant. But nothing can actually happen. We can't be really open in that moment because we're missing the moment. And so change is not possible. Transformation is actually impossible. The Buddha said that patience is the path to freedom. It's the highest form of devotion. So obviously, placing a huge degree of um, appreciation for this particular quality of heart that is within It helps us to understand how much we can't control, accepting the nature of change. Patience is a quality that sometimes people who have lived for a long time are familiar with. Of course, not always true. Sometimes those who have lived a long time get more impatient about the way things are. But... It is possible that in living a very long time, patience is something that one learns because of knowing that one is going to suffer. You know, as the body breaks down, which is inevitable for all of us, there is going to be suffering unless there is patience coming as well. I used to have this great job where I was taking care of, of older people And one particular older person that I was taking care of during this particular period in my life, um, this woman wanted to uh, go to a donut shop every day. It's this famous place in Cambridge. Maybe some of you who live in Cambridge know this place. It's called Verna's Donut Shop. And it's it's a little bit famous because Tip O'Neill used to love the donuts there. And actually, this is a little bit of a digression, but just, just before he died, supposedly he said, gee, how wonderful that honey dip donut was at Verna's. <laughs> and then, <laughs> it has to be up there in terms of great, great um, statements before dying. So anyway, I uh, was delighted, of course, to have a job. I, I actually do love donuts myself. So I was, <laughs> I was delighted to have this job where I actually had to go to the donut shop every day. You know, I had to eat a donut every day to accompany the, the person I was with, this, this, um, this lovely older woman, and, and get paid for it as well. It was, you know, I, I would wish for that job ever since. Anyway, um, one day when I went in, one morning when I went in, she was very chatty and she knew everybody and, you know, she'd been going there every day for a really long time. And so Edna, her name was, she was on one side and then another older woman sat down on the other side and it was a little bit difficult because Edna wanted to bring me into every conversation and, you know, um, and I had to kind of be very aware of the whole situation and, and do my best to accompany her and take care of her. But 
this um, older woman sat down next to me on my other side and started talking to me. And I was kind of half listening because I was trying the other side of my mind. I was trying to listen to Edna. But at one point, she really caught my attention. And I turned to her because what she said was that she had lived a really long time and she was about to transmit to me what was most important for her. (laughs) So, you know, I was all ears (laughs) because she was a lot older than me and she looked great. I mean, she just looked so happy and radiant. And I, I thought, this is, you know, this is getting a transmission. And what she said to me is that the thing that she had learned the most about in her life and the thing that had helped her the most was growing into a greater degree of patience. You know, this was it. So I thought, thank you. you know, thank you, Edna, for making me come to the donut shop. And, and thank you to this person as well. All of us have um, situations in our lives where we get to practice patience. I mean, on a retreat, from moment to moment, we get to practice patience. But we also, in our lives, have particular situations that are provocative or, or difficult. And just a, a very, very light example of this, in this same stage, um, when I was taking care of older people, I was taking care of another person as well. Um, actually, I had to make breakfast for her instead of eat donuts. So I would make breakfast for her every morning. And actually, it was before the donut phase. I was making breakfast. And and I was um, in the midst of making breakfast. This woman uh, had Alzheimer's and also had had a life where she got to order people around a lot. So I think it was the combination of the two that came together because I would be downstairs making breakfast and just, you know, very simple breakfast, but it was very, very specific in terms of what was needed, what was necessary. And I would hear my name being called from upstairs, you know, like, Narayan. And I'd have to stop exactly what I was doing. You know, even if I was in the midst of having something on the stove, I'd have to take it off and then go up the stairs and attend to whatever was necessary, and then come down the stairs and begin with the egg again or the or the toast or whatever it is. And then I'd hear my name again, Narayan. You know, and sometimes it was just many, many times during the making of breakfast. And then, you know, then kind of questioning me, where is my breakfast? And how come I don't have it as soon as I as I want it? You know, I'm really hungry. So it was just a great situation in which to I was practicing, thank goodness. It was a great situation in which to have to learn patience. And it was wonderful, too. Sometimes in work situations, things don't feel quite as personal as they do in our our more personal relationships. So it it was one of those situations where I really could see it as a practice opportunity. And it did help quite a bit, because what I began to do is just to surrender. The job became so much easier after that because I'd hear, nah, you know, and I'd be running up the stairs, you know, before having to do the whole thing or before resisting. Okay, I'll come in a minute, you know. Before doing that, I began to just flow with it, and it was a whole lot easier. Our practice is to bring patience to everything. And one of our questions, of course, is indeed, can we bring patience to our impatience? 
Obviously, for me, in that particular situation, it's not like I was flowing right away up the stairs. I was irritated. I was not happy about um, having to interrupt myself all the time. Can we bring patience to our impatience? With the recognition that impatience is rigidity, within impatience there is not much room for change. We want things to happen in a certain way, outwardly and inwardly. We want situations to be different and to go according to our agendas, according to our individual schedules. And we inwardly want things to be a certain way. We want to be able to choose and control what arises within us, thinking on some level that we can choose and control. You know, thinking on some level, too, that we should be able to choose and control what is arising within, not recognizing that what arises is actually out of our control. It's how we are with what arises that makes all the difference in the world. But the arising is always our conditioning. In relationship to practice, one thing that helps so much is understanding what is our responsibility and what is not. And what we can see, what we can learn, is that our responsibility is our efforts to be present. Now, this is what we have some say-so about, not when we're gone. We don't have any say-so about it whatsoever. But when we come back, when, we're, oh, oh, wake, when we wake up once again, we do have some say-so about it. We're there. You know, we can encourage it a little bit in that moment. So our efforts to be present are really where we do need to take responsibility. But the other part of this, which is just as important, is that we're not in control of the results of practice. We have no idea how the practice is going to evolve and grow and develop for us. So our practice, in a way, is to practice and to let go to practice and to let go, to be present and at the same time to let go of our agendas and expectations about what should be happening because I'm being present. In other words, to let go of the ways that we negotiate. And when we negotiate, we're actually not present because we're concocting. You know, we're, we're thinking, okay, if I'm present for two more seconds, this should happen. Okay, if I can be present throughout the day today, maybe that will happen, something I've heard about or read about. And really, it doesn't work that way. Really, our practice is to practice, to be present as much as we can, and at the same time to let go. And to be aware that we can't control that which arises. However, we can be with that which arises with a greater degree of grace. Ajahn Chah said that the Buddha taught that with things that come about of their own, once you have done your work, you can leave the results to nature, to the power of your accumulated karma. Yet your exertion of effort should not cease. Whether the fruit of wisdom comes quickly or slowly, you cannot force it, just as you cannot force the growth of a tree you have planted. The tree has its own pace. Your job is to dig a hole, water and fertilize it, and protect it from insects. 
That much is your affair, a matter of faith. But the way the tree grows is up to the tree. If you practice like this, you can be sure all will be well and your plant will grow. Thus, you must understand the difference between your work and the plant's work. Leave the plant's business to the plant and be responsible for your own. If your mind does not know what it needs to do, it will try to force the plant to grow and flower and give fruit in one day. This is wrong view, a major cause of suffering. Just practice in the right direction and leave the rest to your karma. Then, whether it takes one or 100 or 1,000 lifetimes, your practice will be at peace. This is really a statement of patience when you get to the part of 100 or (laughs) 1,000 lifetimes. (laughs) Obviously, patience is required and is enormously helpful. We live in a culture where patience is actually not very cherished or valued. We live in a culture, and most of us have grown up, really with an idea around um, instant gratification, thinking that things should happen um, even before now, not even just now, but preferably before now, you know, that we should already be whatever it might be. You know, I don't know if, if any of you have, have experienced this in other areas. I remember being a child and actually thinking these kinds of thoughts, that I should be. And it's not that I was in any way precocious or, or that I really should have been. Um, not at all. But I remember these kinds of thoughts going through my mind that I should be. And I think it's very much in the culture, this sense of things already should have happened. I found this really great advertisement in the New York Times or the New Yorker some years ago, which I think is very apropos to instant gratification relates to our practice quite well. There's the picture of a, of a huge Buddha on this sheet of paper. And this is what it says. It can take several lifetimes to reach a state of inner peace and tranquility. Or it can take a couple of weeks. <laughs> Concentrate deeply. Think about a 14-day ocean journey to Singapore or Bali, Thailand or China. Days when your every whim is anticipated, instantly met, sights, smells, lights, sensual feasts, imagination can't do it justice. Now a flash of insight, Royal Caribbean will take you to the Far East. (laughs) Our son Viking has just begun a year-round presence there with five itineraries sailing to over 25 of the world's most mystical, exotic cities. Along the way, the same lavish attention you already expect from Royal Caribbean in the rest of the world. It's a vacation that, until now, simply did not exist. But you can believe. Call, and you can ask me the number later. (laughs) Or simply ask your travel agent how to reach Nirvana. (laughs) Don't put it off another lifetime. It's brilliant, you know? It's really just great. (laughs) Krishnamurti once said that patience is not of time. Now, in other words, if we're thinking about time, then we're not patient. Patience really has to do with the timeless. 
And we can notice this inner sitting. When we're sitting and we are, if not overtly looking at our clock, or looking at somebody else's clock, if we can, we are thinking about how much more time is the sitting going to last. Yeah? We're aware of time when, as you and I know, five minutes can feel like three hours sometimes when we're in pain, and other times three hours can feel like five minutes when we're having a good time. Yeah? And yet, we still seem to get caught by this sense of time as if it matters you know, in a sense, we've made up this concept of time so that we can get in the hall at the same time. You know, it's, a, it's a societal thing. And yet we find ourselves quite caught and oppressed by it. Something so helpful in terms of applying patience in the moments when one is just dying to look at one's watch or thinking, you know, I'm dying to look at one's, my watch, but I won't but still I want to know how much time is left in this sitting, is to be aware of what is um, fueling that thought. You know, in other words, when one notices, I can't stand it, how long is this sitting going to be? See if you can rest back a little bit, settle back into your experience, and see if you can feel the aversion that's happening or the impatience that's happening or the unpleasantness or discomfort that's happening. You know, sometimes it's not really strong pain. It's just a feeling of, I'd, I'd rather do something else. You know, something is just not quite right, and I would rather not sit with myself right now, thanks. You know? And yet, here we are, we are. And so taking that next step means to bring some attention to what is fueling that thought instead of believing that thought of time, about time mattering. Another way in terms of freeing ourselves from the sense of time, the oppression of time, and to move into um, true patience is to notice how often we are trying to do one thing in order to get onto the next thing. You know, how often we are sitting with this agenda in mind that when we get up, we're going to move into a walking. When we get through with the walking, you know, we're going to move into lunch, um, high point of the day, done. We start planning for the next thing that we're going to do. And all of it with this idea in mind, always doing one thing with this idea about the future, this idea about what we're going to do next. And of course, oftentimes we live our daily life in this way, but we don't always see it very clearly because most of us in our daily life have a lot of things that we need to do and we have the lists that we need to accomplish. So of course, we want to practice this in our daily life. We can practice it in our daily life. It is possible, certainly, to practice it in our daily life. And in a retreat situation, it's just so stark. It's just so clear to us. It's so bare. It's so highlighted. Because what we're going on to is not all that thrilling. You know? I mean, other than lunch, perhaps. Um, you know, after the sitting, there is just a walking. After the walking, there is just a sitting. And that's it, over and over again. And really, what is thrilling is the amount of vitality and interest that we bring to each moment regardless of the activity that we're engaged in. 
So because of this, we can begin to see our attachment. We can begin to see how often we're thinking, we're, we're, we're being pushed into the next moment, and then we can relax back and, and be patient with things as they are. We do have a variety of ideas and concepts that can be quite solid about how our practice should go, how it should develop, how it should evolve. Initially, we pick up these ideas and these concepts from books or from talks. And then as we have some practice experience, it comes through those practice experience. It's kind of a a corrupting of the experiences that happen because the experiences in and of themselves are just what they are. But our tendency is to make them solid and to cling and then come up with a new set of ideas and concepts out of the experiences that have happened. We can get quite excited by the experiences that happen at times. We can get quite dismayed by the experiences that happen at times. And as well, we can see that these experiences are just experiences and don't really have all that much to do with us in terms of our relationship to ourselves being as solid as it may be. We can practice with a sense of personal gain of I have to get somewhere and it better be soon. Or we can relax into wisdom and compassion. We can relax more into things as they are. When things are going really well, we want the practice to have something to do with us. You know, we want to be able to claim it in that way. But in actuality, it's really a burden. Any claiming of any experience whatsoever is a burden that we have to carry around with us and at some point let go of anyway. Because it sets up insecurity. It sets up anxiety. It does set up impatience. And we don't allow ourselves to settle into, once again, what is happening right here and right now. Over and over again, this is it. There was a a comic strip that I came across some years ago, a picture of a, a younger monk and an older monk together, sitting together. And the younger monk has this kind of perplexed and unhappy look on his face, and he's looking up to the older monk, and the caption is coming from the younger monk, what do you mean this is it? But always this is it. Always over and over again, this is it. So we can find ourselves comparing, we can find ourselves lost in judgment, in assessing, in evaluating our practice, in planning, in worrying, We can find ourselves managing the retreat. And I say, you know, let the manager here do it. We don't need to manage the retreat on our own. We can't tell how practice is going by what it is that is happening. There's um, There's this great story. It seems that this farmer and his son were very poor. So poor, in fact, that they had only one horse. And one day, their horse ran away. When he saw what had happened, the son said, Bad luck. The father just shrugged his shoulders. Bad luck, good luck, who knows? The next day, the horse came back, accompanied by four wild horses from the surrounding countryside. 
Now we have five horses, exclaimed the son. What good luck? Good luck, bad luck, said the father. Who knows? Later that day, while the son was trying to tame one of the wild horses, he suffered a bad fall and broke his arm. More bad luck, he complained to his father. But the father remained impassive. Bad luck, good luck, who knows? The very next day, a representative from the emperor came with orders to take every able-bodied young man back with him to fight in a war. But since the son's arm was broken, he didn't have to go. By now, the son was starting to catch on. Good luck or bad luck, asked the father. Who knows, answered the son. (laughs) Think of times in one's life when we thought that something was a blessing. You know, that we thought it was just the best thing in the world that had happened. You know? And then after some time had passed, maybe it didn't seem like such a great thing after all. You know? Maybe it seemed like it was trivial, and what were we getting all excited about? Um, maybe it just didn't sustain us in the way that we had hoped that it would sustain us. Maybe we were actually just completely deluded, and it was actually a, you know, a very not good thing that was happening. But most of us have these kinds of experiences in our lives where we thought something was really great and a blessing, and then it just didn't hold us over the long term. You know, it didn't really sustain us in the way that we had truly hoped that it would. And of course, it's true in the other way as well, sometimes very, very difficult situations, although we would never wish them on anybody else. Certainly, we would never wish them on anyone else. Still, we know for ourselves, sometimes there's something very precious that comes out of it. Yes, with some situations, obviously, it can take years and years and years, depending on the depth of the difficulty of the loss but we can sometimes see that there's something totally unexpected that truly we have to say is a blessing, you know, that we never would have said it about when it first happened. So most of us have this kind of experience as well. It is the same in practice. We have experiences that are we see as good or as bad, as pleasant or as unpleasant, as deep experiences or as superficial experiences. But the truth is that we just don't know. We tend to focus in our life and certainly in our practice because our practice is our life on what it is that is happening, on the content of what's happening instead of on how. How am I relating to what it is that is happening? And it's important to recognize, to realize that the what is always from the past. What it is that is happening is always conditioning arising. It's always the past coming up in the present. And if we can see this, it's so helpful. Because we need to know what the what is, of course. We need to recognize what's happening. But we don't need to stress it more than is warranted. We simply need to know what the what is without thinking that it means more than it is. The how, how am I relating to it, is the present. Now, this is where freedom and wisdom are possible, is in how we are with what arises. Remembering that, once again, 
the arising is not in our control because the arising is the conditioning. And again, we don't want to take responsibility for that which we have no responsibility for. Our conditioning does mean that which is already over, that which is past. And so how graceful, how kind, how compassionate, how wise can we relate to the wonderfulness and the enormous difficulties that we experience in the present moment? Can we relate with a greater degree of grace? Liberation comes through bringing attention to how we are relating to what's happening because in bringing attention to how we are relating, we can learn from our experiences. We can let these experiences let go of us. We can not nurture that which is not beneficial, that which does not serve us. We see that we can slowly let these things wear themselves out without adding to them, without perpetuating them through trying to hold on, dwelling through trying to push them away. Wisdom emerges out of our awareness of our reactions. So we can be aware of our reactions to push away, to justify, to cling, to dwell, to identify with. Understanding this is what makes patience possible. Patience is a balance to effort. Patience helps wise effort to be sustained over the long term. Perhaps another word for patience could be the long-enduring mind. I had a a friend who now has a son who is is in his teens and is quite a a lovely, respectful, um, uh, neat, this is significant, neat person. And when he was little, my friend would suggest that he bring his plate from the table over to the kitchen sink. So she started, you know, when he was old enough to do that, not baby, but when he was old enough to do that and could actually pick up his plate and bring it to the sink, he, she started saying, would you please bring your plate up and bring it to the sink? She said it every day for four years. At the end of four years, he did it. At the end of four years, he started to do it on his own. And this is the way we need to be with ourselves, this long-enduring mind, this patience of seeing ourselves not do what we might want to do over and over again. And the constant patience, the constant encouragement, the recognition that we're going in the right direction, and that is really what matters So oftentimes, these things are very gradual. It's very painful sometimes to see the gap between seeing the suffering and the creation of suffering and not being able to let go, not being able to do anything about it. And we begin to see this in a very poignant way in our practice. You know, in the beginning of our practice, oftentimes before we come to a retreat or in our daily practice, or in just the very beginnings of waking up to the practice, we're just so completely identified and glommed onto things that we're just lost in a fog about it. But as we practice more and more, as we 
are patient with the practice and continue over the long term, eventually we begin to see, as, as we are in this, in this room, we begin to see our limitations, our difficulties, our sources of suffering. We begin to see them very clearly, but we can't let go of them. They're really very strong, very, very clear. Um, they're there as very, very, very strong, potent patterns within us. And to see that gap is oftentimes a very, very painful gap. And so we can become discouraged because of this. It is so important to not identify when one sees the torments of heart within, when one sees the the limitations or the difficulties or the um, constant ways that we may be judging ourselves in others or the ways in which we may need to speak out and we can't speak out or the ways in which comparing mind is coming up over and over again. And we see it so clearly, and yet it still seems to have its same potency, its same power. It's so important during this phase of practice to relate to it as a phase and to not identify, not to see it as self, but to see everything as energies arising and passing away, not to claim. You know, if we don't claim, then this gap begins to narrow. You know, if we do claim, then gap narrows anyway eventually if we continue to practice, but... Um, it's a whole lot easier if we remember to practice not claiming and not identifying. Patience is very much based on faith, whereas impatience is very much based on doubt. To build our faith, we need to look at the development of our practice in any way that makes sense to us. You know, sometimes as as a teacher, because I've been working with with many of you, actually, but many others for uh, many years at this point. Sometimes I wish that I had baby pictures that were like psychic baby pictures, you know, not, not real baby pictures, but like could, could psychically show um, the beginning of practice and then what happens as practice moves along because sometimes it's really hard to see this in oneself. Yeah. Sometimes it's very, very difficult to see the development that actually has happened uh, in oneself, and, and it helps. It helps to have a mirror for these things. But we can see, we can reflect, we can look. Perhaps one example is that when we first come to practice, maybe we notice that um, we're judging others a lot. You know, maybe that's something that we begin to notice. But our first retreat, perhaps, we're judging others a lot, and we think that it's justified. You know, we think that others should be judged. And um, everybody is doing everything wrong. And there could be a whole lot different with the retreat center, and the food could be like this, and so on and so forth. And we believe our thoughts. You know, we actually believe our thoughts. We start writing notes to correct people or to correct the retreat center or, or whatever it might be. And then... You know, we sit more, we sit more, we sit more, we practice, we practice. And then at another point, you know, at another point on a retreat, we realize, ah, you know, we're still judging just as much as we were ever. And yet we're not believing it quite as much. You know, we're not behind it. We're not justifying it. We're actually beginning to question it. 
Now, maybe we still believe it's, it's partially true, but we're beginning to question it. You know, we're, we're, we're really asking, is it true or not? And then practice develops, practice moves on, and we begin to, um, to, to feel, ah, this needs to go. You know, this has been around too long, and this needs to go. And we begin at that point to bring impatience, to recognize that thinking that it has to go is because we're identified with it in some way. I am a terrible person because I am so judgmental. And then at that point, we learn something else. You know, insight comes in once again, a, a deeper degree of insight, and we begin to see judging is happening. It will be let go of. It will let go of me, in a sense, in its own way and in its own time. And at that point, judging can happen as much as it wants, and it doesn't have anything to do with you. You know, It doesn't bother one at all because it's seen as just thought, empty thoughts arising and passing away. But it's that kind of a process that we are undergoing. So we can begin to see, rather than wanting to get there, you know, to this end point, just to see what has changed. Sometimes the changes are very, very small. And um, we were joking around in one of the groups today that, you know, we begin practice and we have all these, you know, enlightenment ideas and, and um, kind of, not that enlightenment is not possible, but after one day of practice, of course, it usually isn't. So, unless you're enormously, uh, have incredible karma, um, but we have all these ideas that, you know, if I just practice a, a short amount of time, then, um, then something, you know, that I've read about um, is going to happen. And then we just get worn down, which is actually positive. As the months go by, the years go by, maturity actually enters in. And we begin to, in a sense, be quite delighted with very, very tiny changes. You know, very, very tiny changes we're thrilled by. <laughs> and that actually means that there's a greater degree of maturity that has entered in. You know, more real depth has entered in. Not imagination, not fantasy, not superficiality, you know, but a real understanding of what it takes to practice. You know, what it takes with so many years of conditioning to turn that conditioning around. You know, we become respectful of the power of our conditioning and the possibility of that conditioning dissolving as much. Patience is based on understanding. It's based on the recognition of the path as being vast. We recognize that there is so much that we can't know. Patience offers us a sense of spaciousness. We realize that we may make plans and the universe may not cooperate. However, recognizing that in cultivating qualities of heart, heart qualities, we can't go wrong. And having greater degree of confidence in this, having a greater degree of confidence in this allows us to surrender to nature. And we realize that in our practice, what we're doing is over and over again, we're simply planting seeds of happiness, you know, seeds of wholesomeness, seeds that are benign and beneficial, that bear fruit in their own way, in their own time. Uh, Maha Gosananda once said, take care of the present and the future will be well. The Dharma is always in the present and the present is the mother of the future. Take care of the mother and the mother will take care of her child. 
there is indeed a path. This path is not an illusion or a fantasy. There is indeed a direction. And that direction is one of non-grasping, of acceptance, of relaxation, of letting go. As I said earlier on, the Buddha said, Ehipasiko, come and see. So come and see the path for oneself. Try to reserve judgment about how things are going. For now, simply see if you can keep the kettle on the stove. Over and over again, see if you can just simply remain present. Don't stop and check. Don't take it off and see if you're cooked yet. You're not cooked if you have to check. So just just keep keep it on the stove and practice patience. With practice, the mind orders itself. The heart comes into fullness and balance and contentment. There is less belief in our thoughts and our emotions as being solid and permanent. And there is a gradual immersion into how things are. The result of practicing patience is patience. Sit for just a moment. May all beings be patient with themselves. May all beings be patient with others. May all beings relax into wakefulness. <laughs>